Real Crime presents the Stephen Avery Special. Ken Kratz Bites Back. Welcome to the Real Crime Podcast. This is our Stephen Avery Special with me, Ben. And me, Tanita. And also our producer, who's also called Ben, um, who, who's only seen Making Murder season one, uh, and it was quite a long time ago, so we might be dropping some spoilers in oh, ben. <laughs> for him and anyone else who hasn't seen season two of um, Making a Murderer. So um, maybe you ought to go away and watch that or at least some of it before you listen to that so just to get us up to speed um in Ma- making murder street season one there's a trap called stephen avery he's accused and eventually charged um that's the same thing he's <laughs> he's charged and convicted with rape and attempted murder that's right isn't it yeah so this is the rape and attempted murder of a local jogger um, in Wisconsin, USA. And, yeah, he is he's convicted and he's put away for 18 years mm-hmm. until finally the Innocence Project helped to overturn his conviction. And it turns out they had the wrong person. So he was absolutely innocent, innocent of this crime and episode one of season one uh, sees him released and then he pursues a compensation claim for $36 million. But in the meantime... He's accused of murdering a local photojournalist, Theresa Halbach. And um, it is Halbach. 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 I think it's the Welsh in me. (laughs) 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 I pronounce CH as as H. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the the basis for the rest of season one. Um, And he's eventually found guilty and. Season one focuses on the perceived miscarriages of justice that happened across the gathering of evidence um, and the building of Stephen Avery's case. And it includes the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, who put Stephen Avery away, who wasn't directly involved with making a murderer in in terms of um he was he was filmed but he he didn't volunteer to um uh, appear on on the the show's cameras or or anything like that it was just part and parcel of his um was that the the first conviction yeah that's that's the first conviction um and you've interviewed ken kratz haven't you, Demeter? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the whole point of this podcast. We get to this part and I go, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the phone for an hour and a half the other day just to my mate. <laughs> yeah, just pretending. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we were lucky enough to have him come on board, which was great because we always appreciate when people take the time to talk to us. And yeah, we had an interesting conversation about what things have been like for him post the whole making a murderer frenzy and everyone going absolutely crazy for this story. And we had a little talk about the way in which the documentary was put together and what he generally thinks of it and Stephen Avery's case. Because we've seen a lot about how the defence have perceived this case and what 
the defense's theory is of how this was put together. But we don't really hear a lot about what the prosecution really had on Avery. Mm. I mean, they must have had something to put him away for for murder. That's not something you would ever leave to chance. Well, the whole of um, season one is really quite selectively edited. I think there's you can't argue any way no. around that. No, that was a lot of people's opinion that it really did kind of cherry pick certain parts and Mm -hmm. there were a lot of questions about, well, what about this? This wasn't explained properly. Where was this person all the whole time? Mm. So, yeah, I don't think that's unfair to say that it was selectively edited. And in season two, uh, we, um, Kathleen Zellner, um, really goes into... um, uh, excruciating detail, um, breaking down um, the prosecution's case with uh, the blood evidence, the, the 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 bones in the fire pit, the 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 DNA evidence that was found underneath the latch of Teresa Halbach's Halbach underneath her the latch of her, the boot of her car that was found in Avery's scrapyard. Yeah, she's really a sort of powerhouse to this whole series. She kind of comes in and just blows the whole thing apart with mm. all her independent investigations and experts and so, analysis. Just to clarify, she's she's Stephen Avery's new defence lawyer. That's right, yeah. So yeah. Ka- uh, uh, Kathleen Zellner came into this case for season two of Making a Murderer as um, his Stephen Avery's, Avery's lawyer, and she's working pro bono. She's working for free. Um, arguably, I, I suspect that if this was season one of Making a Murderer and no one had, had ever heard of the show, that she she wouldn't be doing it. Um, well, she doesn't. She's got quite an impressive CV. background mm-hmm. and CV. Yeah, she's you know she's really made her mark as a post conviction attorney mm-hmm. and so maybe she didn't she doesn't need to start taking on people just randomly she kind of does it because she's she's yeah, good at true. it I, I mean i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that i i just don't think i don't think we'd we'd be seeing uh, kathleen zellner if this was season one of making murderer she knows she's gonna get Several million people watching her for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's going to raise a profile. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, is some good advertising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to be one of the most famous lawyers in the world, surely. But I'm, I'm, I'm really happy we got um, Ken Kratz to speak to us because he he didn't take part directly in season one or season two of uh, Making a Murderer, and this is the first time. He's spoken to anyone about um, season two of Making a Murderer. Yeah, he'd only finished it like the few hours before we spoke to him. Yeah. So yeah, it was really great that we got that like fresh perspective. Yeah, from him. it was. It's really interesting because uh, one of your questions to him was, you know, what your what are your reactions? How 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 did you feel about the uh, season two? And he was still. It was he was still cogitating and digesting, you know. It was not really sinking in. You you can imagine, you know, this uh, this lawyer is um, coming out of nowhere, more or less, and just breaking down his case that he had put together for making a murderer, and uh, the the case that had put Stephen Avery away, and she's taking all this evidence and 
tearing it to bits and, and pointing out the the inconsistencies and um, potentially where evidence had might have been planted. Yeah, she's really calling him out on what she calls kind of gross negligence and, yeah. you know, misconduct. You know, there are accusations that he violated the Constitution. There are accusations that he acted... Um, you know, unfairly, really quite vicious. Yeah, she allegations takes. She, she really. Uh, she takes a pr uh, proper stab at his professionalism, basically. Does, does he take it personally? Uh, I think it's hard not to, isn't it? Really? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. You've done this wrong. You've botched this. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. quite personal. <laughs> There's clearly no love lost between the two of them. Mm. You know, they're clearly on completely opposite sides of the spectrum in this in this case. So what what did you? I mean, just in general, what did you make of Making a Murderer season two, Tanita? I was really interested to go and watch it again. I'd waited, like everybody else, three years to see this next this next instalment. And I almost preferred this series to the first series. Really? Yeah, I have to say I did, just because it had all that kind of really in-depth um, forensic aspect to mm. it and you know there was all these different investigations and you sit back and you go wow that's really in-depth and it's really you know interesting to see how they've torn this investigation apart. It's a, a, another perspective I, I yeah. suppose. Yeah I mean the the first season I thought was was good you know don't get me wrong um, but yeah I just felt like season two went a bit more into it and I, I think we were familiar with the characters, so it was like it's like going back to see old friends, isn't it? Yeah. And you kind of you my know, mate catch Stephen up. Avery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What did you reckon? Uh, the the opposite to you. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think okay. I think what made uh, season one of Making a Murderer so good was the novelty. Like no mm. one knew about Stephen Avery, um, his case with the Innocence Project, anything like that. So. Like practically everyone, probably everyone outside Wisconsin, basically um, looked at this case with completely fresh eyes, and the writers had carefully structured this narrative um, across the the first season, uh, and it was it was really cleverly done, really well done, really gripping watching. I think um, that's the problem. I had too many questions after the first season, and it felt like it ended. And I almost expected there to be another episode just explaining all these little tidbits that weren't explained in the first season. So the second season kind of revisited those and it did answer a few questions I, I think, had. I think that was the only way to do season two if you were continuing the story of Stephen Avery because all eyes would have been on Stephen Avery and his case after that. The only way you could have done, done season two is by having this exclusive access. You've got a hotshot lawyer doing pro bono work. She's going in depth. You've got the cameras in focusing, razor focus on, on the evidence. Like no one's got this kind of material, uh, access to this kind of material. So yeah, and asking and answering questions that a lot of people would have had from from season one and and continuing the narrative that Stephen Avery was stitched up. I think Kathleen Zellner came across really well on camera. There was something really 
I don't know, almost mesmerizing about watching her, the way she, she kind of talks and she's so <laughs> she's so um she's so confident mouth. in what she yeah. says, you know, and she comes out with all these statements that are really quite bold statements, but she just sits there nonchalantly, just like, yeah, yeah, this is what happened, and of course he's innocent, you know, and I just I just think she comes across really well on camera. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. So you've seen both seasons. Mm -hmm. What's your theory? Do you think Stephen Avery is guilty or do you think he's not guilty? Um, oh, I'm so on the fence on Are this. Are you? Oh, I'm really pleased because so am I. <laughs> like, such compelling argument on both sides. The, 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 the thing is with season one, um, I, I, I know it has been quite selectively edited and it's been cherry picked it's been cherry picked and also the prosecution's case has uh, has been sort of bits have been taken out of context and put together with to to, to present this narrative that that the 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 writers wanted for 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 season one and and it really sort of frames Stephen Avery as this innocent guy, and Stephen Avery is is, I mean, regardless of his innocence or guilt, he he does come across as like just a humble, decent guy. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess um, on real crime we we deal a lot with serial killers, and like quite a lot, of, a lot of them seem like just decent decent guys when when they're sort of interviewed but they, they've done horrible things i think everybody forgets and that's the one thing that i like to keep drawing people back to is they forget that Stephen avery has a rap sheet he's not somebody they've just picked on mm. if they've picked on him per se but it's not he's not someone he's not your average joe you know he's been in prison for animal cruelty, he's been in prison for pointing a gun at a member of his own family for driving them off the road for a burglary. You know, he's not the most savoury character, and I think that sometimes gets left in the shadows a little bit mm. as everyone tries to focus on whether or not he's innocent or or whether or not Dassey was coerced with his confession. And I do think Dassey has become a bit of a pawn in all of this, and I don't... I don't personally believe he's involved. I don't think he is. Either. No, I think there was some something really went awry there. Mm. But Avery, I'm so on the fence, and I I can't go one way or the other with either season. It's interesting hearing you say that because apparently the makers of the documentary themselves aren't decided on whether he's guilty. Is that right? Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. oh, that's yeah. interesting. Well, what do you think, Ben? Um, I came away from the first season feeling that Stephen Avery was was probably innocent. Yeah, it is quite and, powerful. And I did feel particularly sorry for Brendan Dassey. That, yeah, that, that was a that was a big lasting we... impression. It reminded me of a case um, that I I knew about from the the uh, the fifties in England, where it was a film was made out of that as well. Um, let him have it. You know the Derek Bentley Oh, case. I love that film. Yeah, well the the guy the guy there he was he was basically they wanted to make an example of someone um, for the death of a policeman. Yeah. And uh, although this guy was really just a kind of stupid sidekick, kind of hanging on to this other guy who was far more aware of what he was doing, um, because he was there at the time of the murder, he ended up getting hung for it. It was one of the last people in this country to be to be given the death sentence mm -hmm. for it to be carried out, but he didn't pull any trigger. Um, and it all rested on the prosecution saying that he said, let him have it. Yeah. And then did he mean like, let him have it? Or was it, 
Let him have it, in other words. Let the him have the gun. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Have you not seen this film? No, oh, I haven't. Watch it. It's and it's, such it's a great based film. on a true story. Yeah, yeah. It is really great, really great film. Hmm. Um, but yeah, you could almost apply it to this situation. You know, Dassey was really young. He's clearly got a very low IQ compared to your average average person and we know all about the read technique and how that can sometimes mm. go awry and it can if it's used in the wrong way it just creates havoc yeah we did we did a um a breakdown in uh i think was it issue 40 42 we did um we did a a feature on 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 the read technique and how effective it is it's what is it? so it's this um interview t- technique that that's used in in the States, certainly, and it's been used, it was developed, I think, in the 50s by a chap called John Reed. And, um, yeah, it, it it's kind of a natural progression of, um, from, like, a, a good cop, bad cop in the 30s um, uh, and the third degree. Um, so it's a natural pro- progression of interview, police interview techniques to... to get the truth or at least get the, a confession out of uh, a suspected criminal. But one of the things um, that the uh, re-technique states in the instruction book, um, I guess, for... for, for, for how to you, be a policeman. How to be a policeman, yeah. Policing 101. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is, like, you're, you're not meant to use the re-technique against people um, with low IQs or, or uh, deficient um, in, in that way, in, in some way, or who are really easily manipulated. Or children, which Brendan or, or Dassey children. was. And so, like, I mean, Brendan Dassey falls into two of these categories. Also, you're meant to have uh, an adult present in the room in in the interview room with him, so um, uh, and I, th- I think he was held there. For, he was held there for hours, and they and the the policeman gave him the information, um, and then he just sort of um, fed it back to them. Uh, just just I, wanting to please. Yeah, just wanting yeah. to please them. them. I'm wanting to be. Yeah. You know. So so this technique, you're um, you're you're supposed to use it against like hardened criminals like adult hardened criminals you know they 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 they, they might have a, a a record already and you know um that they probably convi- uh, committed this serious crime uh, and so you sit them in the room and you 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 break them down basically yeah like it just it just didn't apply to Brendan Dassey but one of the things is as well with the re technique they give you a list of all these things that that a person will do if they're guilty. And some of the things on this list are just ridiculous. If you say, I don't know, that means you're lying. So if you genuinely don't know the answer to the question they ask you, then they think you're lying. And Brendan Dassey says, I don't know, dozens, so, yeah, dozens of times. So in this case, yeah, they follow the rules, right? In, in the context of a hardened criminal... They're sitting in a room with a hardened criminal. The criminal says this. They they can follow this set the this set of rules. I think there's um, seven or eight stages to the re technique, and like that they they'll take you through. Um, and in, in that case, that would mean that this hardened criminal is is lying. Yeah. But in Brendan Dassey's case, 
it just seems he, like he doesn't actually know he, the answer, he and does, he is trying to he, please he them so he can go home. He wants to tell them whatever truth they want to hear, um, but he genuinely doesn't know the answer. And like, like sit, sitting from from behind the screen, um, I, I I I absolutely believe that Dassey is innocent. Like, there's like, or at the very least, he doesn't know that what the truth is, and therefore he is innocent. So let's listen to Ken Kratz, uh, former prosecutor Ken Kratz, and his reaction to season two of Making a Murderer. The um, first thing I wanted to ask, um, you know, how has life been for you post Making a Murderer? Well, as you may know, when the first docuseries came out in December of 2015, I uh, I was attacked by... Um, really people around the world uh, with uh, with death threats and and nasty messages they they um, made a concerted effort to uh, ruin my uh, law business in uh, Wisconsin at the time you know this was this was you know ten years or more after the initial case had uh, had been uh, investigated and prosecuted, yet uh, people really around the world thought that I deserved additional consequences. I deserved something to happen um, to me personally or to uh, or to my business. And unfortunately, they were successful in um, getting me to close my business. They harassed my clients. They um, called my office every minute or so jamming the line so that legitimate uh, business calls couldn't get through. And they uh, really, in about a, a three-month uh, period, uh, took me from a uh, a thriving business, a thriving law firm, uh, to not having gotten any new clients. Uh, and the clients that I did have um, were very uh, unhappy with the attention that I was receiving that their cases then uh, were receiving, and and they they uh, opted for different counsel. And so um, when um, you know when prosecuting a case that many years ago uh, results in current consequence, results in really negative. outcomes um it's 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 disconcerting and and not just for not just for for this case uh, but when you look at uh you know more of a societal um outlook on this um you know what what does that tell you what does that tell you is the um the mindset of of individuals feeling entitlement entitled to um, not only attack, you know, somebody from from years ago, but to um, you know to really do the kind of internet um, uh, trolling and bad mouthing. You know, my my business on on, uh, on the internet was so soundly canned that um, you know that nobody would hire me again, and so I'm I'm. Um, you know, I'm very disappointed in a, in a larger sense about what passes now for um, 
you know, legitimate um, disagreement or um, uh, or even rendering an opinion on such a on such an old case. I understand it's high profile. I understand that um, the way making a murderer um, framed their narrative, no pun intended, um, with uh, with um, um, all of the different allegations of law enforcement and and other citizens that may have committed this crime, but when they when they presented that compelling narrative, I I never believed that you know myself or other law enforcement officers who um, who were accused by these filmmakers of planting evidence or of um, of misconduct, I never believed that it would be um, uh, accepted. You know, by so many people, as I understand, about 40 million people watched, uh, disappointed and angry, quite frankly, that they would knowingly misrepresent so many things, that they would knowingly deceive that many millions uh, of people. And uh, rather than being held accountable for that deception, um, you know, the documentary filmmaking industry, really worldwide, Gave um, gave these two such accolades and and um, and awards. Uh, um, you know, they had received four Emmy awards, including one for creative editing. Yeah. Well, think about that a second. They 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 were splicing things together that never happened in real life. You know, they took a they took testimony of Andy Colburn. Um, answering questions that he never answered in real life. They they harvested answers from a different part of the trial yeah. and put them connect, put them connected to uh, questions that uh, that Mr. String asked. And so when you do that, when you are creating a narrative, not just reporting one, not just documenting one, which is what a documentary is uh, is supposed to be about. When you are creating more of an advocacy uh, piece and not really reporting it, I think that goes well beyond what documentaries, um, uh, you know, legitimate documentaries should be um, about and should be uh, awarded um, for. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how the second um, docudrama, how the second uh, part of Making a Murderer uh, is not only received by by the public, but how it's uh, received by the the industry itself. So, have you, have you seen the second season at all? I know it's only recently come out. It, it, it did. I just finished it yesterday, so oh, my um, my impressions are are new. They are raw. I haven't really thought through um, uh, very much of how um, uh, how I should. Uh, um, React to this, and so you're the first interview I've had since since the second season came out. So, um, so we'll see what I say. We'll both be surprised, I guess, by by what I say because it'll be yeah, it'll be the first time I'm asked about this. <laughs> so, um, you know, what we what were your impressions? If you could, you know, just in a in a in a nutshell, sort of initial impressions. Well, the filmmakers had a difficult task in front of them. Because both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey lost all of their appeals, so all of their post-conviction uh, complaints and all of their wranglings for both cases ended up with both of them having their convictions affirmed, 
with uh, um, Attorney Zellner not even getting a a evidentiary hearing in, in back in the court. It was so devoid of any um, believable new evidence at all. Mm. It was such a sham, the motion that and motions that uh, Kathleen Zellner has uh, has presented. You know, she's blamed everybody. But uh, but her client, you know, the, the family members and 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 ex boyfriends and and anybody but Stephen Avery, and that that was the defense posture during the trial. You know, I called it anybody but Avery. They would they would try to point the finger at everybody else. The problem was that there's so much evidence pointing to just Stephen Avery that they weren't able to do that. And so what they do tonight is they they avoid. They avoid um, um, presenting the most damning uh, evidence and hoping that the audience, hoping that the people watching this won't know the facts. Um, Making Murderer 2, the second part, the second series of it, uh, is much the same as, uh, as the first. It still employs the anybody but Avery um, defense theory. Uh, they'll blame uh, anybody. I think uh, Attorney Zellner is unapologetic about uh, her goal to get Stephen Avery out of prison at all costs, including apparently uh, uh, accusing innocent um, people uh, of committing the crimes that uh, that that Stephen did. I think that's um, I think that's unprofessional. I think it is a sham. I think Attorney Zellner um, should be taken to task for her misuse of the, um, you know, not just the court system, but of the um, uh, mass media to um, to further her her propaganda. And so when 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 an attorney goes to these lengths. And demonstrates uh, really no ethics at all in uh, in doing these things. Um, you know, there are um, others, other people than myself, other agencies, other ethics boards, or other courts, or um, or other uh, uh, regulatory agencies that will need to look at this. Uh, and I hope they do because I think uh, Kathleen Zellner has a lot of questions to answer about uh, how she went about this. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like we've got two very different narratives, you know, as as you would expect with any kind of criminal trial. You've got the prosecution and you've got the defense. But let's talk about your book, Avery, because in there you mention mm-hmm. a number of pieces of evidence against Avery and Dassey um, that weren't presented in the in the docu series. So, could you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about the more compelling parts from from your angle, from the prosecution's angle? Mm. No, that's a um, that's a uh, <laughs> that's an old question. So I have to think back to uh, <laughs> to the first uh, <laughs> to the first docu series. And as I go through these, if I if I miss something, please tell me. But there was, you know, number one is is the DNA. Found on the hood latch underneath Avery's hood, uh, excuse me, underneath the Teresa Hallbach's hood of her SUV. During the, uh, 
during the uh, investigation of the case, um, you may see uh, things change dramatically on March 1st of 2006 when Brendan Dassey is interviewed by, by law enforcement. During that interview, Brendan Dassey um, describes Stephen Avery going under the hood of Teresa Halbach's um, SUV. Uh, he didn't know what uh, Stephen was doing under that hood. Um, but uh, uh, but maybe a month after his interview, for the first time, um, and in response to um, his having affirmed to the officers that Stephen went under the hood, they 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 swabbed the hood latch for for DNA. Now this hood latch is only accessible after the 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 trunk is popped okay so after on the inside there's a there's a lever that is pulled and and uh, and the trunk is popped well only then can you reach this hood latch and that's really important for people to understand because it isn't like the police could have planted that right you have to have the release on the inside of the the truck before you do this all right so then they swab the hood latch, and there's Stephen Avery's DNA. Um, skin cells, which um, are sloughed, is the word, off of people's hands mm-hmm. um, uh, all the time, uh, contain DNA, contain rich sources of DNA. And so when, when he reached under the hood latch, he deposited uh, skin cells on the... Uh, on the hood latch. Well, these these um, um, these findings are never once, never once mentioned in making a murderer in in the first uh, docu series. And so, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you mention that Teresa's vehicle has uh, Stephen Avery's DNA underneath the hood? Well, you don't mention it again because they don't have an answer for it. They have no. They have no explanation for, for how that happened. Now, in Making a Murderer 2, they realized that they had to at least address it, and they tried to um, um, they tried to have some experts say, well, it wasn't saliva, mm. and it wasn't blood. and well, well, of course it wasn't. It was skin cells. That's what it is. And so why aren't you testing? Why aren't you testing for what we said it was, which was skin cells? Why would you test for saliva? Why would you think that Stephen Avery... You know, licked the hood latch. <laughs> well, that's crazy. But that's that's what they do. That's what they test for. Now, this is going to be kind of a long answer, but I'm going to give it to you anyway because we're going to. Uh, I I want to I want to I want to uh, raise this point here. Yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. Kathleen, Ka- Kathleen Zellner, and really the filmmakers, I think it applies to them as well. Um, they apply uh, a really common argument technique, which is called a straw man argument. What they do, first of all, is they present something that we never said, okay? So they present, they present a conclusion, they misrepresent a conclusion that they say we drew, which we never did. That's the most important part of their argument. Then they do tests or they do analysis or they make arguments that dispel that falsely set up 
argument that they've made suggesting that we made it, all right? So this is this is really classic. What they do is they set up the straw man, which is uh, whether it's, um, uh, you know, that the, that the hood latch is saliva. Let's say that's the argument. Well, we never said it was saliva. We said it was skin cells. Yet they test for saliva. And because it doesn't show the presence of saliva, they say, well, see, we have dispelled this this argument. Well, it's nonsense, Tina. Anybody that sees what they're doing uh, over and over and over, they misrepresent what the state presented, and then they kind of knock down those arguments. Well, it's easy to do when you when you misrepresent that. Why, Tina? Why why is um, why is the mainstream media worldwide, the mainstream media, so unwilling to ask these filmmakers any tough questions. Is it the is it the, the the mood of not only our nation but the world as it relates to law enforcement as to um, you know that they that they probably are are able or 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 willing to plant evidence on some, some innocent man? Or is that narrative so important for the media to further, to adopt, to um, to act almost as as uh, the PR arm for making a murderer is uh, the media is so unwilling to ask any tough questions that they're 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 simply um, you know allowed to uh, uh, to present their narrative and to and to lie to so many people. Well, I hope this time around it'll be different. I hope this time around, uh, knowing what they did in the first uh, docudrama, uh, some. Um, uh, media sources will ask some tougher questions. And it's nonsense. It's unbelievable. And that's what I told the jury. When I went through, um, uh, again, Mr. Strang and Beauty made all these same arguments at trial. And in my closing argument, when I said, this is so unbelievable, you should not believe this. If it wasn't such a serious matter, if it wasn't such a serious case, it would be laughable um, that, uh, you know, that you could believe that somebody um, would steal um, one of uh, uh, Barbianda's burn barrels and take it off-site somewhere and then sneak it back onto the property without anybody noticing and leaving some bones in there, but not all the bones. They would take other bones and they would, you know, plant them in uh, in this burn pit and, and the things that you had to do, the things that you had to believe, this, the common sense you had to set aside uh, to have believed any of this nonsense is 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 not worthy um, uh, really of, of very much discussion. Yet that's exactly what uh, the defense, uh, Captain Zoner included, uh, has presented uh, now uh, to uh, to the public and. And we'll see if they buy it. I suspect they won't. The courts didn't. The courts rejected her claims so quickly that she didn't even get a hearing out of it. Uh, she may want to appeal and things, but but Avery's Avery's out of options. He's out of appeals. And so is Brendan Dassey. He's out of appeals. Um, so as a filmmaker, what do you do now? What do you do when you lost all of your your appellate efforts, and when you lost any any chance of of uh, having you know a court uh, accept this, well, what you do is you 
um, you attack the original prosecutor, which is funny. Uh, I'm I'm just not involved. I haven't been involved since you know since 2000 uh, since 2010 probably in uh, in this case. Yet I'm still the one that they that they kind of uh, attack and center on, and they they set me up as. Um, uh, as an unlikable character, at least as I'm presented, and and um, and they then you know kind of go from there. So, um, so your guess is as uh, as good as mine, but I'm I'm hopeful this time that that there will be a much more critical review uh, of this uh, series and and Attorney um, and uh, and the docudrama producers will be asked these really important questions because they can't answer them. They can't answer why they never mentioned the the burned phone or the camera. Um, they, they can't answer that. Do you think that if you had been involved and you had been able to sort of get your your point across, the points you, you made, do you think it would have changed the narrative of making a murder or do you think it was always destined to kind of go in this, this one direction? Well, let's Let's put it this way, Tina. I wrote a book that was, I thought, very comprehensive, that um, that uh, in very easy terms, it's an easy read um, that you could understand all of the evidence against Stephen Avery. I pointed out the most egregious um, intentional misrepresentations made by the filmmakers, yet it got almost no coverage. Um the book was so uh, destroyed on Amazon with false um, reviews. You know, it got it got it got so many one star reviews immediately from nobody that possibly could have read the book. Um, and Amazon, you know, um, who's been known to remove intentionally false reviews of books, chose not to do that with mine. They chose um, to leave all of the um, the fake reviews on on my book, and so it was it was so um, uh, so ignored, not only in uh, in the mainstream media, but uh, but by by people. The book just and nobody wanted to hear that side of the story. Nobody wants to present that side of the story in in uh, in in the media, and so I'm in a poor position um, to answer whether I think all of a sudden, um, if my side of the story comes out, that people are going to say, oh, aha, that's what happened. But why would I set up somebody in a different county? Why would I set up somebody in Manorwa County? I don't care um, if they have to pay millions of dollars in, in damages or reparations to this man. It's not my county. It's not my case at all. Why would I jeopardize my career? Why would I jeopardize going to prison to intentionally convict the wrong man? Why would the police kill an innocent 25-year-old photographer just to set up this guy who might be, be suing you know, their county or their employer? It's crazy. It's something that would never, ever happen. Yet that's exactly what they're asking all these people to believe, and and uh, and sadly, uh, many people do believe that. Ken, do you have any regrets regarding the Avery Dassey trial? Do you re- regret pursuing it? 
as you were asked, or do you have any regrets um, regarding anything that you did? You know, after um, after making a murderer came out, and I and I was so attacked again. You know, when I defended uh, uh, the law enforcement and prosecution uh, job for making murder at the time, back in in December of 2015 and January 2016, I was the only one. I was the only one willing to stand up for law enforcement. You know, all the cops didn't. The cops didn't want to say anything. They they kept quiet, hoping this would all just go away. Uh, all the prosecutors didn't say anything. They just hoped it all would go away, and I knew it wouldn't. I knew that that somebody had to stand up and say, um, and say, this is wrong. This is wrong to lie like this. This is wrong to, to present such a, such a falsehood. I did it knowing I wasn't involved anymore in the case and that, and that I had, um, been involved in a scandal after the Avery case, nothing to do with the Avery case, but I knew that was going to be brought up again and I was going to be soundly, resoundingly criticized, but I did it anyway. I did it because, you know, this case deserved somebody to stand up for it and say, um, this was a really well done investigation. This was a really well done prosecution. And so when I did that, knowing I was going to be criticized, and I was, um, fearing that I would lose my law firm, and I did, um, I would still say I have no regrets. Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to stand up for Teresa Hobach, for the Hobach family, for the uh, conviction, for the justice process itself. Somebody had to stand up for the justice system saying, you know, cops don't plant evidence like this. We had 500 exhibits in trial. We had over a 1,000 pieces of physical evidence seized in this case. You think the cops are going to plant that many um, false uh, clues leading to uh, leading to one person. It's hard enough to find the real clues, Danita, much less to uh, to find these false clues. Let me just I'm I'm so sorry parenthetically to do this, but let me just let me just talk about the car. Okay, the car they suggested, Teresa's SUV. They suggested was um, was put back on the Avery property and planted by the real killer, okay? Whoever the real killer was, whether it was the ex-boyfriend or in conjunction with the police or, or somebody, right? This, some, this somebody, this somebody willing to kill this girl and have her SUV off-site, this somebody had to sneak that vehicle back onto the property so that it would be found, so that they would presumably blame Stephen Avery for the murder. Okay? Now, that makes sense. That makes sense that the argument is is that, that this was planted evidence. But when you look at the photos, Sunita, of the vehicle, this is a vehicle that whoever put it there doesn't want it found. It's camouflaged. It is camouflaged with sticks and with old car parts and a, and a car hood. Um, it it, it it's obscured. Well, if you're planting evidence, you need it to be found. Okay? You don't plant evidence and then hide it so it's never found. That's crazy. That, that, to even suggest that, that, that this evidence was, why would you plant these tiny little bones 
of this woman that you've burned and chopped up. Why would you go onto the property, go within 10 feet of this this vicious junkyard dog, his name was Bear, who was guarding the burn pit area, why would you try to sneak past that dog, which you couldn't do, and quietly plant all these bones, which you never could have done? Why would you try to intertwine them with the burned steel belts, the remnants of the tires that were burned with Teresa? The bones are intertwined into those those steel belts. You couldn't do that with these tiny little bone pieces. But they're suggesting the cops did that. They came in and planted all these tiny little little pieces of bones. Why? If you're planting evidence to be found, why wouldn't you take uh, Teresa Halbach's corpse and throw it on his on his doorstep? Right? If you if you want to plant evidence so it's found, you don't plant it in a way that almost nobody could tell that those were human remains. That it took an anthropologist, one of the best in the world, to identify that this was Teresa Halbach. Why would you do that? That's not planting evidence. Um, that's trying to destroy evidence. That's evidence you don't want found. Well, the only person who doesn't want evidence found is the real killer, is the murderer, and that was Stephen Avery. The, obviously, Kathleen Zellner has meticulously attacked the prosecution's arguments, their evidence, their tactics in season two. Um, what were your thoughts on the uh, the secondary investigations that she did on where the blood splatters were in the car? You know, when you see... Well, she, yeah. she hasn't meticulously attacked anything. She has cherry-picked. She has uh, picked and chosen um, um, a fact here and there or an utterance here and there and and tried to... Um, uh, try to set up these straw man arguments that I that I that I talked about before. Mm-hmm. The evidence in the SUV, the blood in the SUV specifically, six different blood stains of Stephen Avery. But importantly, to me, they were they were they were deposited in four different ways. Okay, so in in trial. What the jury heard was that um, some of the blood was from uh, gravity, was from these droplets of blood um, dripping off of Stephen's actively bleeding finger. All right, some of them were uh, what's called cast off, uh, which is a a a way of of finding blood or or at least the result of of blood which is um, which is deposited with some velocity, all right? That, that's most that's most prevalent in this case with the um, with the blood from uh, Teresa's hair. That when she's thrown in the back of the SUV, it, there's this cast off of uh, of blood onto the um, onto the interior of the SUV. Some is is um, uh, contact transfers which means that the actively bleeding finger of Stephen Avery came in contact with the surface. That's, I guess, most um, most well-documented by the ignition switch of the vehicle, where there's this, uh, this, this swipe, this smear 
of, of blood. If you're going to plant evidence, you're going to have to put yourself down in the, in the, um, in the killer's mind. Let's assume for the sake of argument that you're going to plant Stephen Avery's blood in the vehicle. Why would you plant it in four different ways? You know what I'm saying? Why, what, what is it about, about your methods that are so cunning that not only do you plant his evidence in six different places, you plant it in four different ways. Wait, it doesn't happen in real life. And the jury understood that. The jury understood that even if you believe somebody planted this evidence, um, they don't have the ability to, uh, to do droplets someplace and, and contact transfer the other and, and uh, you know, and, and smears and the like. Um, so, uh, just common sense says that uh, so that 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 didn't happen. What don't you hear from from Kathleen Zellner? Well, you don't hear what any of her um, testing of the blood inside the vehicle showed. There was one line in Making a Murderer Two that she tries to sneak in and tries to just overlook, and that was this line. That her experts said that it didn't, I think she said it didn't pay or, or something like that, to retest the blood inside the SUV. Right? If, if, if you, if you ever listen for, for that, she says, well, it, it doesn't pay to retest it. Are you kidding me? The defense, make a murderer one, et cetera, talks about this planted blood. Talks about the blood vial, the vial of blood in the clerk's office being the source of the blood. It, it, the hole, remember the hole in the yeah. in the blood vial, and that and that aha, this was the the what Jerry Buting called the red letter day for the defense when they found the hole in the vial. Well, um, if you retested any of that blood, they would find the same thing that the FBI found that there was no EDTA, the preservative. That's found in every tube of blood, every purple top. Tube of blood has this preservative, this anticoagulant that's called EDTA. And so that's in, in fact, when they tested the vial, it's, it's full of EDTA. It's got so much of this preservative in it, you couldn't possibly hide that fact. Well, if that's the source of the blood, then Kathleen Zellner, why aren't you retesting the blood in, in the vehicle. Do you really want millions of people to believe that it didn't pay to retest that blood? And that's what we've been waiting for? Well, of course you retested it, Anita. Of course all of that blood was tested. But it confirmed what the state already found. Kathleen Zellner doesn't give you very many test results, does she? She does this brain fingerprinting nonsense. Um, and, uh, and a couple of other things that are never, uh, considered, uh, new evidence, uh, by the court. And then, and then she says, aha, look at all this new testing. Well, the real testing that you did, the thousands and thousands of dollars that you spent to retest all this evidence, you don't want us to know the results, do you? Because they're not included. They're not included in the docu-series. They're not included in any of her motions. And so you can draw your own conclusions as to how, how those test results came out. 
We've spoken a lot about Avery. Let's just very briefly go to Brendan Dassey. His uh, the con the confession he made has become a real bone of contention since making mm-hmm. a murderer aired. Do you have any comments to offer on this matter? I'd imagine oh, it's sure. been put to you quite a lot. Yeah, sure I do. Um, in making a murderer, um, uh, you saw um, you know a snippet here and there of um, the Brendan Dassey statement. Uh, if you look at the time stamp, the time that Brendan makes, you know, admissions. Um, so it's really not until about uh, about 12 o'clock noon that he starts uh, implicating himself in the crime. All right. Mm-hmm. At, at first, and the officers believed that Brendan wasn't involved at all, that he was a witness like any other witness. He wasn't a suspect. He wasn't somebody that was on their radar at all. The cops thought he saw something that uh, that uh, involved his uncle, but never believed that he was involved in the rape, the murder, or the disposal of, uh, of Truth Harbach. It's only when he says that he was that things so dramatically change in in the interview. So what they do is they're they're frustrated with with his lack of forthcoming, his lack of candor, um, and and uh, Mark Wiegert finally asks him who shot her in the head. Um, by the way, who shot her in the head is not a leading question. Um, many many people. Um, kind of clumsily say that, well, it's a leading question and, you know, you fed him the answer. No, you didn't. He could have said, I don't know. He could have said, um, Bobby Dassey. He could have said, you know, John Smith up the street, but he didn't. He said it was Stephen Avery. It asked for a specific answer. Who shot her in the head? He says he did. Who's he? Stephen. Stephen shot her in the head. And then it goes dark. Then you don't see any more of the um, questioning, really, until three hours later when his mom comes in the room and and Brendan puts his hands over his head because now mom's here uh, and says, uh, and says, they got to my head, whatever, whatever that means. Um, by the way, uh, Brendan was coached not to answer questions of the cops. Um, he was told that since he was a little boy from Stephen and from, from other family members, don't talk to the cops. And, and, you know, you'll hear in phone calls, uh, with Brendan from his grandfather, from Al Avery saying, don't talk, don't talk to the cops. Um, uh, and, and, and tell him nothing happened. Tell him what to say. And, and telling Brendan, you can't take a plea bargain in this case because it's going to hurt Stephen. You know, it's going to hurt both of you guys. Well, you see who the family really cares about. It's Stephen Avery. And it's it's not Brendan at all. Brendan was told not to take a plea bargain. Uh, Brendan, uh, his lawyer, Len Kaczynski, who's, I guess, uh, rightfully so, deserved a lot of criticism uh, for his representation of Brendan. But the one thing Len Kaczynski did was he was looking out for Brendan. He's the one person in this case that was looking out for Brendan. He secured an offer from me, which would have gotten Brendan released in as little as 15 years in prison, which means in the next year or two, 
Brendan should be walking out of prison. He should be spending the rest of his life with his family and the rest of his life free. Yet, it's his own family that tells him, don't take the plea bargain. When he's looking for advice from his family, from, you know, he's a 16-year-old kid, scared, obviously, doesn't know who to trust. You should be able to trust your your mom and and your um, your um, um, grandfather. Yet when they get the chance, the grandfather Al Avery tells them, "Don't take the plea bargain. You know, don't take 15 years that uh, that you still have most of your life out there because it's going to hurt Stephen's case." Well, that's horrible, Tania. That is such a um, such an example of sacrificing one person's freedom for another's that it 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 it, it makes me angry. It makes me sad. But Brendan Dassey shouldn't be in prison. He shouldn't be in prison after this whole case was concluded, or shouldn't at least be there uh, more than the fifteen or twenty years that uh, uh, that he was offered. That's still a long time. That's a, that's a long time, and that's what I believe Brendan Dassey deserved for his reduced role in this case. We'll see what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and, and as, you, as you may know, there's, um, there's another docuseries being produced. Um, it is uh, scheduled to be released in September. Uh, it's called Convicting a Murderer. Mm-hmm. It is it is the rebuttal to all of this. It's an eight-part series that is scheduled uh, um, uh, to be released then. It's being produced by a, an outfit called Transition Studios, who has made, uh, um, they did a, a documentary called White Boy and a documentary um, called A Murder in the Park, which was about some... Uh, um, Fraud committed on the court to get a murderer out of uh, out of prison, but but the Transition Studios has undertaken this project, um, and they have secured, um, from what I understand, the entire other side. So myself, myself, and all the cops, and all of the evidence that you haven't heard in making a murderer.